Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb the sea. Welcome back to a very special edition of the Art and Science of Running podcast, and uh, I'm overjoyed, actually, <laughs> to, to have a, a friend of mine, um, someone who I admire and respect greatly, someone who I wish I could spend more time with, and so, you know, one of the beauties or uh, benefits of having a podcast is occasionally you get to talk to people that you wish you could hang out with more. So um, we've got Gary Robbins on today. So thank you, Gary, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me and for that wonderful introduction and uh, only uh, reciprocate that for for sure. We uh, we had some fun there a couple of years ago running in the Grand Canyon together. And I'm actually, uh, I'm shocked we've never got a chance to, to revisit a running adventure together so maybe we need to put it on recording right now that we commit to something in the in the not too distant future once we're allowed to do those things again yeah i i would love that um that that is certainly um a fond memory i have of uh that time when i lived down <laughs> closer to the canyon <laughs> uh, and uh and actually i i was planning on mentioning that as part of the introduction um you know you 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 have a long list of accolades and, and we can get into that and we can get into who Gary Robbins is, but um, embarrassingly. So um, I didn't know who Gary Robbins was and I should have, but. <laughs> um, no, no it, and not at all. And, and interestingly, I mean, it was our mutual friend, Sean Meisner, that was kind of filling me in as to who you were at the time as well. Yeah, no, it was, it was great that we were, um, you know, I, it was a group from kind of all over, um, mostly Pacific Northwest. And, and fortunately I had ties to the Pacific Northwest and we were all meeting down, um, at the Grand Canyon where, uh, and, and Sean and I were at the time living in Flagstaff and, um, and it was kind of organized under the umbrella of, um, trail butter, <laughs> uh, a, a mutual partner and, and, um, friends of ours. And, uh, so yeah, we were able to, run the the rim to rim to rim and and despite living there that was actually the first time that that i had attempted that uh, myself and um you know i'd heard that you were coming down and and i i had run a bit with sean who also has ties to the pacific northwest um and jeff and and jeff and jan <laughs> a bunch of a bunch of other people um I, I believe it was a group of maybe 15 or 20 people that started yeah it was a, i think it was about 15 people um and i'm guessing the outside of the organizers who knew everybody uh the most crossover points was probably three or four i know out of the yeah. 15 i think i actually knew five of the 15 in advance and then it's, it, you know it's incredible that's one of the great things about ultra running is it sparks lifelong friendships because you get to spend, I mean, we ran probably six or seven, eight, ten hours together that day. I forget the exact time frame, but 
You know, you get to know somebody when you're you, when you're talking them up for eight straight hours, like you wouldn't get to know people otherwise. And uh, and I've considered you a good friend ever since. And it's funny to think that's the only real time we've gotten to to spend face to face outside of a couple of quick quick meetups um, over the last couple of years here. Yeah, yeah, um, it really is a beautiful thing that we're able to uh, make those connections. And and it seemed almost instantaneous. Uh, I I guess part of um, the appeal was that you didn't expect that I knew who you were, <laughs> despite <laughs> that night. Um, and, uh, and we just ran, we just clicked and, and, um, it didn't take too long. Um, I think kind of once we got to the river together, um, as a group, we kind of kept re-meeting or, or joining back up, but then some of those flatter sections, you and I just kind of started rolling and, yep. uh, and we made our way to the to the north rim, and it was snowy on both rims. And um, <laughs> snow is still something that's foreign to me. After, <laughs> even though I now live in Alberta, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I I remember getting to the other side, and the water was shut off. And uh, I I at least hadn't done my homework to realize that the water would be shut off. And um, and I was losing it. I was like, I can't get back down. <laughs> to the river without water like i had rationed up to this point but i'm like i i just finished whatever little liquid i had and and you were just super chill and um gareth and i we we continued on a couple we added a couple extra miles to get to a spigot on a full search party with looking for spigots and water finding sticks off in the forest yeah, I sat in the sun in the parking lot for about 45 minutes. I know you did that. Well, we were, you know, scrambling, just losing it. And uh, as as someone who has spent a lot more time in, in the wilderness um, than I, um, you just improvised and were like, huh, well. You I know, didn't tell I you until afterwards, but you can actually eat snow. <laughs> I know. I learned that. Um, but, but that's how little exposure I had to snow um, prior to that point. So you filled your bladder with snow and just let it melt, which is an ingenious, <laughs> very Canadian thing to do. And uh, and I hadn't had that experience yet. And so I uh, I just tacked on a couple extra miles just to get, to get a little bit extra water out of a spigot rather than letting it melt in my pack. So yeah. Um, that was certainly a, a, a memory that has stuck with me, and, and I've I've been able to rely on it since. Um, I've I, I now know that you can eat and eventually drink snow. <laughs> um, but another another funny part of that run was that when we were together running through the canyon, I remember we kept bumping elbows as we were exchanging stories. Um, and I, I believe you apologized at least as much as I did. And I had never met anyone in my life who apologized as much as I do. And uh, so, so true story. Like when time came for me to eventually move up to Canada, which was not even in the cards when you and I first met down there, no, one of the first yeah. was like, well, you know, Gary Robbins is a really nice guy. And like, he's, he like he was just so nice and apologized as much as I do, and you didn't even think it was weird that I apologized as much as I do, and which is a really weird thing for Americans to do. And uh, so that was part of the decision making process. Was like, well, you know, Gary's cool, so I would assume the whole country's cool if Gary's cool. So you know, I, a, I guess I it's fair to infer that. that. Yeah, if you've got one data point, it's very fair to apply that to thirty three million, and I think it comes out pretty good in the end, right? Yeah. 
so far so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm actually amazed. I've never gotten back there because I loved absolutely everything about that experience and always intended to get back. And my wife has never been, so we've always planned to go back, but um, yeah, just uh, there's so much to do in the, in the sphere of, of long distance ultra running, but that, that still is very high on the, on the repeat list and not a lot of things do make the repeat list to begin with. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad we had that experience and, and maybe we can return there with our families at some point, but that would probably take a little extra coordinating, which is... Well, for uh, you, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you for indulging me. Uh, that, that really was just a, a, a fun experience that I, that I wanted to, to recap. And um, like you said, you know, it was just a couple hours. Eventually, um, I think you were actually training. And so <laughs> for something, I was... <laughs> trying to crawl out of the canyon but you you were training i think for the gorge waterfalls or something like that back when that was a western qualifier um yeah yeah that's right i think that was the same year um and uh and yeah i was uh it was it was great to kind of get down there and and run a big day with a bunch of people and um um yeah i think i think going into it out of the the 15 people that started i i had probably done the most mileage in the previous four months than anybody so i fared well that day yeah. Yeah. I, I hiked out with the rest of the crew that, that decided to go all the way to the North Rim. And, um, and to this day, it's still, um, I would say was maybe one of the more challenging days of my life, um, in, ter- in my running life. Um, and, uh, and so I, I try to, when, when I have athletes contact me and they say, Hey, you know, I want to run the rim, drim, drim. I remember how, enjoyable the experience was and and it I, you really couldn't pick a better group of people to do it with i mean some of those people are still just way up there on my list um yeah. but in terms of uh <laughs> how long it took for me to recover from that <laughs> like <laughs> my my calves to like the knots out of my calves to come out and, and stuff um i've tried to discourage people from doing it or make sure that they respect what they're what they're uh going to attempt and, and really try and prepare for it <laughs> so that they um have a positive experience for sure yeah it's a it's a big effort for sure yeah well um one thing that you that you mentioned is that you know that was i think that was 2014 so it's it's been six years yeah. um, since uh since we did that and um we have connected a few times but but one thing that i wanted to actually chat with you about is um it's kind of your approach um, how, how you're able to balance everything that you've got going, you know, you're, you're a husband, you're a father, you're a professional athlete, you're a coach, you're a race director, um, among other things, um, just an all around good human being, which I think (laughs) helps you at all those other things. Um, but, uh, but one thing that I've, I've noticed about you that I wanted to ask you a little bit more about is that. I, and I don't know if this has always been something that you've that you've been able to do, but you do a good job of uh, of protecting your time or managing your time um, and and establishing barriers or boundaries, um, which is something that I I think a lot of people in the spotlight struggle with. Um, yeah, and, and I and I guess I guess what's interesting with you is that 
I don't know a single person who's met you. I don't know a single person who's who's run one of your races who doesn't feel like they have a personal connection with you. I don't I don't know a person who's watched a video with you who doesn't feel like they know you <laughs> like just an incredible human being. How how are you able to be present when you're present while also like making sure that you you do create that space and that time for yourself and and your family and 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 just the other priorities that you have in your life when you're not on as yeah. Gary Jones, the, the, the superstar kind of thing. So. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting, you know, handful of years here, certainly since 2017. Um, I mean, prior to 2017, I, I had still competed at a high level and, and I had had some success at some big races. So I was establishing myself. Um, but the 2017, the the infamous Barkley finish, it really altered. It, it altered everything, and 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 to this day has has lasting effects on my um, <clears throat> how how much I'm known and what I'm known for. And um, and I've really found the last three years to be interesting in in different. I've faced different challenges that I never would have envisioned or be, or thought that they it could become a challenge. And prior to that, I think realistically, um, it was pretty reasonable, pretty pretty easy to to balance everything out. I didn't have a lot of media requests. I didn't have a lot of uh, people reaching out to me that I didn't have a previous connection with or, or know really. And and um, it was so minimal that it was easy to to oblige. And um, and what I remember is after it happened, um, I I fulfilled the media responsibility. I did about 35 or 40 interviews about everything. And then I also had over 300 personal messages from around the world from 90%, 95% people I'd never met before. And I, I at this time, I felt very obligated to be present for these people and to thank them all. And I worked my way through essentially 300 email communications with strangers just saying like, you know, I really appreciate the support and thank you for the kind words. And, and, and then it kind of died off a little bit because that was the moment. Um, but we had videoed it. We had, and, and Ethan produced a phenomenal video where dreams go to die. And, um, and then we did our film tour, which is one of the times that we got to cross paths and you were very generous in supporting and, and, uh, and sponsoring the event when we went through, um, and then eventually Ethan released uh, Word Dreams Go to Die to YouTube for free to watch. And uh, it's now had over a million views. And once it went live and was was uh, free for all to view, um, <clears throat> it, it's just been this this build ever since then of, um, of people reaching out to me um, via whatever platform they, they can. And trying to connect in some capacity, and um, and I was really struggling with this uh, through most of of 2018 because I still felt very obliged, obligated to be present for everybody. But I saw at the end of that calendar year that it was becoming super stressful, and I was dealing with the realization that it was. It was unnecessary and I needed to, at the end of 2018, I stepped away from social media entirely for 30 days because I was feeling so overwhelmed with every time I was on social media that I didn't know how it was going to continue to make sense for me. And 30 days became three months. And when I came back online, it was with hesitation 
but with kind of a set of ground rules in place that I had to implement to make social media appealing for me to still utilize. And I couldn't get back onto social media and A, be present for everybody and B, feel guilty about not being present for everybody because it was such an impossible thing to stay on top of. So I, I shut down my personal Facebook account right away. I was at the time I was getting over 200 direct messages and personal messages a week. And, uh, and I just, I, I couldn't continue down that road and it, it was affecting my, my mental health. It was, it was becoming stressful and, and unnecessarily so. So when I came back onto social media, I just basically said, listen, I still get a lot from social media. I still enjoy aspects of it. I will be as present as I possibly can while still maintaining my family and my work and my training as being the pillars of my life that are much more important than being present for for people that I will ne- probably never meet. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and it took me so I, sh- I turned off every single notification on every single service that I have, and uh, and I stopped checking direct messages entirely. And it was a period of months of still feeling a little bit guilty about things, but coming to terms with the fact that it, I, I said to myself then, and it's proven to be true. Anybody that truly needs to get a hold of me will find a way to do so and, and has, but very few people need to get a hold of me. And I wish there was a way to communicate to people who were messaging me that I, I don't see it. I don't look at it. If I look at it, I comment and I just can't. Um, so I wish people knew that I'm not ignoring them. It, personally, I'm stepping away from that, that space entirely. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and it did bring some more, some more balance back into, into things for me. And certainly, you know, there, there are some lost opportunities that happen. Um, I know that uh, people only know how to reach out to others through so, through direct messaging, and and some people won't take the next step to to figure out how to get a hold of me. And funnily, um, a year ago, uh, HBO were trying to get a hold of me to feature me in a special about Barkley for 2020, and it took the person who was trying to reach out to me almost four months to get a hold of me because she kept direct messaging me and asking me why I wasn't responding and I wasn't checking direct messages. And finally she got a hold of me and all I could say was, I'm, I'm sorry, I've missed that. Of course I want to be a part of this. So I, I also have to accept that I will lose out on some opportunities. There are certainly, you know, almost all of the messaging, the messages are, are positive and supportive and they're, they're wonderful and they're lovely. Um, but I personally need to take an all or nothing approach and for me, it has to be all. I have to step away from the unnecessary side of social media entirely because I can't effectively balance that with my other responsibilities in life that take precedence to it no matter what. Yeah, well, it's it's certainly admirable. And um, and I I can't imagine what um, what that's like, um, especially for someone who who is as genuine as you are. I, 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 I don't use that word lightly, but I, I think that, um, anyone who's met you 
feels that. Um, anyone who's even heard you speak, uh, anyone who's listening to this now knows that you're not just articulate. You're not, you're not just some politician, but you, (laughs) you are a thoughtful, um, caring individual. And, um, and so I, I hope that those who are listening, who may have messaged you (laughs) recognize that you were, that you were doing this so that you could be who you are for, for those who are closest to you, but also for those that you inspire around the world. And, um, it, it, I've never felt it come off as anything other than like, all, actually all it has done for me is, is help increase my, my respect and admiration. <laughs> it, it, it really has. And it's not because I feel like you're at a distance. It's because I feel like you, you know what matters and you prioritize those who matter and um and and yeah i i do feel grateful that we you know have been able to connect when we've been able to connect and i don't feel the least bit slighted if we're not able to connect i mean the the fact that that you um are willing to come onto this show um after three years of not doing a podcast <laughs> and um, and it, it, to be clear you you were just on dylan bowman's podcast and i do not care one bit other than the fact that i have a ton of respect for the guy and um and think almost as highly as him as i do of you so that i don't feel slighted that you know you happen to be on his uh his <laughs> before before ours but the fact that after a three-year hiatus you um you were willing to um to connect in fact you sent me the reminder saying hey i told you i wasn't available because i had some things going on and, and we'll get to that <laughs> but <laughs> but as soon as this is over uh, yeah um let's reconnect and let's do that i i didn't take that as you know no i'm not available screw you i took it as genuinely like i i knew you had a lot of stuff going on that's why <laughs> that's partially why i wanted to talk to you um, and i appreciated the the, yeah, the respect you showed and 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 reached out to you because i never wanted you or anybody else i'm 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 straight with people i have said no i've had to become very good at saying no to people and it's not an easy skill set it takes a lot to learn how to say no to say no politely but firmly and to not waver when you've made a decision to say no to someone or something. And the majority of people accept with grace and a minority do not. And that's on them and not on you. But certainly I've had to become very uh, experienced in saying no. And I've said no to five specific things in the last eight days. And when I said to you, I want to do this, but not right away, I make a note of that. I, I mean what I say. If I didn't want to do it, I would say, listen, I can't make the time for it because I can't make the time for everything. And and like I said, I've I've had to to say no politely to to five requests of other things in the last in the last week, week and a bit. Um I got a request yesterday to do a Zoom conference call with an organization in South Africa that I met through doing a race there in 2012 into 13. And I had the same response of can't do it now, want to make it happen let's talk again in three weeks. And, and then I've had other that have reached out and I said, listen, I just, I can't, I can't say yes to everything. And what I, I do do is certainly, um, I do my utmost to connect with friends and acquaintances. And that's why you were at the top of that list. And Dylan was at the top of that list and South Africa, his name is Safi is at the top of that list because we have a relationship and I want to connect with you 
in general, not just because you're hosting a podcast, but because it's nice to connect with people that you, you already have um, a rapport with. Yeah. Is that something that you, thank you. First of all, um, it, 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 it really does mean a lot. Um, and, um, I, it, it is funny that we have had so few actual in-person interactions and, and I do feel a, a real connection to you. Um, but like I said, I don't think I'm unique in that. I, I know you have thousands of people who run your events and, uh, and millions who have watched the show who feel like they have a personal connection with you, uh, which is not unique. Um, not only in this, I'm sorry, which, which is unique, even, um, even in the sport of ultra running and even in the sport of, um, well, just in general, like it's, it, it, once someone reaches that, that star status, it, it usually they feel like they're untouchable. And, and I, I've never gotten the impression and I don't think anyone has ever felt the impression that you feel like you're somehow better than them. Um, which is, which is strange that I I really do. I still think it's strange when people dote on me for what I consider to be no reason. And it's flattering and it's, it's wonderful that all of it is positive, but I still deep in my heart have those moments of like, I'll never understand it. I'll never quite, quite understand how this became what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, like I <clears throat> grew up in a small town in Newfoundland and moved west to Alberta in 96 after dropping out of university and washed dishes and pots and pans at the at the Fairmont Hotel just to to get out on my own. And uh, so I like I truly come from humble roots. And I <clears throat> having been in the sport of ultra running now for 15 years, um, what you, you get, you meet, um, you meet people and you very quickly can identify who are salt of the earth people and who just do really, uh, play up to the, this, the star status that they have. And, um, I definitely grab, find myself gravitating much more to people who are salt of the earth and, uh, and, and, uh, and do nothing but come across like that all the time. Such as yourself. Is that, <laughs> thank you. Um, is is that uh, is that something you learned um, in as growing up, or is that something you learned like as an adult, or is that something um, that you have you read something about that 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 might help other people, or uh, because I mean it 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 especially now um, <laughs> when we are um, I mean in some ways we we're all seeking connection. Um, and yet in other ways, uh, we might feel so confined and, and maybe a little too connected <laughs> to some of the people that inhabit the same space. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying that about anyone in my family. I'm just saying I'm hearing that. <laughs> I read it. I read it on the internet somewhere. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. So is that, is that something that you've learned over time or was it just kind of the way you were raised or, uh, any any direction that you can can give, um, I, I I would really appreciate it, and I think others would benefit from it as well. So, well, I can't I can't um, I I don't feel like it's something that I learned over time. I feel like it was just always a part of my upbringing growing up in Newfoundland. I don't I think I think you'd be hard pressed to find a Newfoundlander that didn't love to tell stories, love to to make jokes, and try to make people laugh, and that 
didn't share a, the same sense of of seeing the world as equals and not seeing tiered status of people around them. Um, I, <clears throat> I, I I guess it really was just my upbringing, not only on a micro level or a macro level from my family upbringing with parents who've been married for, for 45 years and, um, and still a supportive family, but also in a supportive community in, in Mount Pearl slash St. John's, Newfoundland. So I, I think I was just fortunate with the circumstances that I was raised in. That's really good. I, I, I want to get back to that um, in part because of some of the things that you shared in your your recent discussion with Dylan um, in The Well. That's the name of the podcast. And I certainly recommend anyone listening to this that you um, that you listen to that episode and that you subscribe and listen to his other episodes. Um, Dylan is um, a phenomenal. He's also one of the good guys in the sport. And I, I met him in 20, 2013 in Chamonix at UTMB, we were both in the same hotel and right away he came straight up to me and we started chatting and I had never met the guy before. And I was like, you can tell you, you get the vibe from people. And even at the time, Dylan was big time. Uh, and he's only gotten bigger since then. And I remember walking away from that conversation and I was like, that was one of the like most unexpected, pleasant, awesome interactions to have as a first impression of somebody. Um, and yeah, just another really good person. The sport is filled with good people. I didn't mean to imply otherwise earlier. The sport is predominantly filled with great people. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Dylan and I met at this, that same year as well. Um, we were both on the Pearl Azumi team. Um, and that was kind of when he was kind of taken off. He'd already had some, some good results at Western States and, and a few other places. Um, and I, I think we, we met at a, a 50 K national championship or something okay. down in this, I think. Um, and we were both kind of, I think he was coming off an injury and I was <laughs> injured. Um, but, uh, he, same thing. Like he, he didn't act like I should know who he was. Um, he didn't, <laughs> um, he was gracious when he, when he, when we met and gracious after he destroyed me, um, and, then, <laughs> um, and has been since. And, and, um, like you said, there, there are some really good people, but he's one that, that really stands out. And, and he's one of the, he's one of the good guys that you cheer for and that you're, you're happy to still see in the sport and to see yeah. having the success and, and the longevity, um, of a career that he's had. And I mean, he's one of the people, one of the, I would say one of the lucky few that, that has found a way to like make this work as a, <laughs> not just as something totally. that he, like it's it's a lifestyle and, it, and it's his it's his means of providing for himself which is which is really cool mm -hmm. uh, uh so the two of you talked um we'll, we'll stick to this setting boundaries piece um and then i wanted to get into some other um things related to some of what you mentioned but um you mentioned that when you go for a run you you usually put your phone on airplane mode mm. and i love that <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to just record it and um, just play it on repeat um, to to athletes that I coach, um, to family members of mine. Um, just you know, I, I felt like it was it was very validating <laughs> to hear someone uh -huh. else who was like, "No, you know what? I actually." Like you said, if someone needs to get a hold of me, they'll find a way to get a hold of me. But well, I remember. Um, this what it must have been five, 
four or five years ago, whenever they first started getting text messages onto, onto wristwatches. And I was running North Vancouver. I was running up Lonsdale and one of the billboards at the bus stop was selling this watch. I forget which brand it was, but it was a, it was a GPS outdoor watch. And the sales pitch was that it was someone running and checking their text messages on their watch. And I had a visceral outward emotional response of like, ew, I feel assaulted. I can't believe that is a, that is the least favorable thing to ever try to sell to a running experience. Like talk about just taking everything great about going for a run, being free, being on your own, spending time to, in yourself, in the forest, away from all of the craziness of day-to-day life and just finding some solitude and then just throw your text messages out of your watch while you're out there. Like <laughs> be present for just a minute a day, right? Like, just be yeah. present for yourself and being present for yourself allows you to be present for your family and being present for your family allows you to be present for others. And I can be present for more people in my life when I take the time to be present for myself to start. And my wife used to give me a little bit of grief early on about the airplane mode because it was like, well, what if something happens? And the reality is, you know, in a small time window of a two hour run, chances are nothing is really going to happen. But um, but absolutely 100% <clears throat> phone is on airplane mode. There are no notifications. There's no way for the world to get a hold of me because that's my time to spend with myself and in my own head. And I don't run with music frequently either. Um, I've gone through waves over the years, but I mean, I haven't run with music in, in probably almost a year now. And, um, and you know, I, I get back from a run and it's like, I've solved all my own problems within the first 45 minutes. And then I've solved all the world's problems within the next 45 minutes. And then the last 30 minutes is just joy at the fact that I figured out the universe. <laughs> and then by the time you step out of the shower, you're like, shit, what were all those solutions I had again? <laughs> but, but I, I truly like, I, I, I do solve a lot of things. I do think up a lot of things. I mean, that's that time that I spend offline running or biking or doing whatever with, with myself um, is not, you know, air quotes, wasted time by any stretch. I mean, a lot of the the projects and, and things I've come up with from a business perspective on out have, have stemmed from the idea that hits me at, you know, 65 minutes into a two hour run of like, Oh wait, I got, that's an idea. What if I could make this happen? How would I make that work? And that, that creative space and freedom is something that we entirely lack in our existence these days. We don't give ourselves permission to be bored anymore. We just, and I, I can be guilty of this too, but I try to establish barriers myself with my phone, with social media as well, to allow myself to get bored. So much creativity stems from being bored. And I think one of the things that afflicts us as a society the most these days is that we have all just become conditioned to to fear boredom rather than to celebrate it and search for it. Yeah, I I love that, and I I hope that more people will listen to <laughs> to, to this. And um, I think I think some of us are experiencing more boredom than we have in a long time. <laughs> Certainly not not in listening to this podcast, but. Um, <laughs> 
in, in being confined. And, um, and I, it sounds like we grew up in, in maybe similar places. Uh, mine was rural Eastern Oregon, but uh, small town, humble people. Um, you're a man was only as good as his word. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and you could tell the kind of person that someone was just by shaking their hand. Um, a handshake meant something. Yeah. It's exactly that. A handshake meant something. And that was your, that was all, it, there was never a writing or agreement. It was like, if you shook hands, that was, that was it. It was, it was, you know, solidified. Yeah. Yeah. You can look someone in the eyes. You can usually feel the calluses on their hands and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, that they're not messing around and that they're serious about it. And, um, and I, I just really admire that about you, but I, um, that, that that's the kind of guy that you are, but I, I also appreciate the, I, I think sometimes when, when life is a little bit simpler, um, we, we do appreciate those other, the, those other things. And, but how, how quickly can those <laughs> new technologies and <laughs> new conveniences, uh, enter in and become a way of our lives. And, uh, it's not, it's not so much that I try to be a Luddite, um, but I, <laughs> I, I get scared when, um, I, it's, I had almost the exact same experience, um, with the, with the text notifications. Um, I was given a watch, you know, four or five years ago, uh, not by a sponsor, but just some random, I think my brother got a watch that he didn't want. I tried it and it was synced with my phone and I was like, okay, this is cool. Um, and, and then all of a sudden I wasn't just getting notifications, text notifications. I was getting like Facebook notifications. I was getting Twitter notifications, <laughs> weather notifications. And, and I remember after one run, one, it had drained my entire battery because I was getting so many notifications and used a lot of data, I think. But, but two, it was just like, man, like <laughs> that's usually one of my favorite places in the world. And that was miserable. Like I was just like, it was constantly distracted and, and I actually enjoy being, uh, not being afraid, but, but being aware that, huh, is that, is that little bit of gravel or snow that's, that's falling? Is that a, is that a cougar up there? Is that a bear coming out of the woods? Like I, I would much rather be worrying about that than what's the buzzing going on on my wrist. And um, it, at least you'd have a, a better story to tell if it yeah. were actually a, bear or a cougar, you know? So yeah. Yeah. You can't be present if you're constantly distracted. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned your parents um, and, and maybe we'll get into them a little bit, but I was wondering, um, I guess just where that, um, has impacted your, your perspective on your own marriage, I guess, just, just your upbringing. Um, you mentioned something in, in the podcast with, with Dylan, just that, you know, you've, you've been told before now, wouldn't that be nice to have a wife that's as supportive as, as supportive as, as Linda is to you. Um, yeah, and as I, if that was just gifted to me like out of nowhere and I didn't do anything to, to, to earn that. Right. Or, or to, to seek that out. <laughs> yeah. So, so how does that work though? Because, um, you know, people may not see people who aren't close to you or, or who, who aren't as aware of her, um, athletic, uh, prowess and, and, and accomplishments. Um, Speaking of which, she's she's doing the Aravipa um, hundred mile challenge right now, isn't she? There's, yeah, this. she's going to wrap up tomorrow. She's been doing uh, fifteen miles a day, fifteen to seventeen miles a day every morning, and uh, she's going to wrap up the hundred miles 
to, I think tomorrow. And that'll be the first basically hundred miles. She was going to do it in 10 days. And then she was like, Oh, I can do it in seven. And that'll be the first hundred mile running week that she's had in, uh, in next to forever. And it's been great. It's inspired her to get moving again. And it's inspired us as a family to support that and to make the mornings work so that mom can get out for her run. And I said to her yesterday after her run, I've really been enjoying this structure. I've really been enjoying how much it's giving to her. And she just had that response of like, oh my God, thank you. I was thinking the same thing. I was really hoping we could find a way to continue to, to move this forward. Um, and, you know, that's like, we are both runners. We both understand the need for physical activity, what it brings to us physically, but just as importantly, mentally. Um, so it's very rare that she or I will try, will, will actively prevent or, or dis- dissuade the other from getting their workout in. It's usually the exact opposite of her putting her foot in my ass because I've been lounging for too long or just losing some motivation or vice versa like this, where it's like, okay, you got your, you got your feet rolling, feet moving. Let's find a way to keep this rolling from, from here on out. Um, <clears throat> and you know, the more I support her, the more she supports me and vice versa. Um, and certainly through, I mean, I grew up again, like we, like we've mentioned in a, in a wonderful supportive family with, with loving parents. Um, yeah, my, my father worked at the post office for 35 years. My mother worked in retail. So we, uh, we didn't have more than, than we needed for sure. And when I moved out West, I moved out West with $500 in my pocket. But what was interesting is I worked at the BAM Springs for five years and uh, a good friend of mine ended up being this guy from Australia and we had known each other for almost a year. And then I ended up going, I was going to Australia and New Zealand to travel and he, I was going to visit him and spend some time with him and his family. And he finally said to me, listen, there's something I haven't told you. Um, my family is one of the top 10 richest families in Australia. And I was like, what? Seriously? He's like, yeah, our next door neighbor is, is, um, is Nick Faldo? Who's the, no, who's the famous Australian golfer? Um, like I should top, know that. I, I, yeah, I'll remember later, but like the top Australian golfer from the 90s was their next door neighbor. Okay. But he said something else that rocked my world. And that was after getting to know him for a year, my parents came out for a visit. He met my parents and he said, listen, we, got, we have all the money in the world. My dad's a bit of a jerk. I don't actually love my father. It's been a weird relationship my entire life. And he said, you have the most amazing relationship with your folks, but you don't have any money. And he said, I would trade with you any day. And as someone who grew up with no money, all you ever think you want is money because it alleviates stresses. And to hear someone who grew up with bottomless pockets, but no love and support from his father figure was a weird moment for me where I, I finally was like, geez, I didn't realize until that day how lucky I was with my circumstances that I had kind of always taken for granted up until I was 20 at that 20 or 20, 20 when we had that conversation, my, me and my buddy. Um, and it really put things in perspective for me of, of what's meaningful. So I grew up in this, this um, supportive family and <clears throat> I constantly saw what a healthy relationship was. So over, you know, the, through my twenties and into my thirties, um, I 
ended up ending some really good relationships with some really good people that just weren't great. There was nothing fatally wrong with the relationship, but it wasn't the person that I thought I should spend the rest of my life with or the person that I thought I would wake up each morning and just have that sense of like, ah, I can't believe I married you. I can't believe I get to spend another day with you. And when Linda and I met 11 years ago, uh, we've been dating, we've been together for nine years. We met 11 years ago, um, which would put me at, uh, at 32 at the time. I was very confident in who I was and what I was looking for, as was she. And that allowed us to, to meet at the proper time in our lives where we were both okay with who we were and we were both okay if the relationship didn't work out. And we brought enough stability to the relationship that we were able to start something really special that nine years on, we just said to ourselves the other day of like, it's crazy to think our 10 year anniversary is, is next year. And it feels like we've, we've just been dating a handful of months. And for, for me, you know, that's, that's, that it starts and ends there. It starts and ends with the person you share your bed with the person you spend your days with. If that, foundational block that's everything is built off of that and if that has fissures if that's not if that's not able to hold the structure on top of it then everything else is kind of like a house of cards and in the last nine years since i've been with my now wife i feel like life has really started to take off for us and it has allowed me to succeed and pursue things and vice versa and um And it is through the mutual support that we have for each other that we find a way to ensure the other person gets to do what's meaningful to them. So when Linda supports me for five straight years for this stupid Barkley pursuit, it's, it's not without the other end of the, the sword being I am obviously supporting her in her pursuits as well. Something my wife did um, a year and a half ago was she's done over a hundred ultra distance races. She or marathon and above ultra distance races. She at one one point she ran thirty five marathons in a calendar year. So she was that person for a couple of years. Um, but she decided that she wanted to mix it up and she wanted to get into powerlifting instead of running for a little bit and just to do something different. So she spent six months working with a powerlifting coach and she did a powerlifting competition. And it was really fun to support her in, in that. My wife has never come to me with an idea that I've, I've said no to or didn't find a way to support. The closest I ever came <laughs> to, to uh, the, the, the most I've ever had to internalize what I was actually thinking <laughs> prior to speaking was when my wife said to me, after we had had our son who was born on the back half of August that she wanted to do the fat dog 120 the following year, meaning she was going to run 120 miles before our son turned one year old. That was the, that was the first time that my wife pitched something and I was like, I'm going to have to really come to terms with some stuff here to figure this out. I will give her a couple of days to see if this is still something she wants to do. And sure enough, she was all in. We found a way and she finished the Fat Dog 120 uh, a week before our son turned one year old. Wow. 
that that is impressive and and that's not just a 120 mile race that's that's it a a, a, a an, in, an intense 120 mile race that's uh, 120 mile mountain race absolutely yeah it is it is and the craziest thing was <clears throat> the night before the race our less than one year old child had an on a meltdown and we as a family did not sleep so we were in a hotel out near cathedral park for the start of the race and we literally did not sleep a wink that night and when her alarm went off the first thought i had was there's no way she's going to start this thing and that's okay and then she got up she went through the motions and she got herself moving and i was like oh my goodness my wife is so much tougher than i am (laughs) and then she was breastfeeding at aid stations i got to do 40 miles with her in the middle of it and it was just an incredible experience and one of the highlights of our 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 nine-year relationship was that. And what again, it was like so easy for me to have attempted to to put the brakes on there, to stop her for, from pursuing that. Um, and and only now in hindsight can we just say what an incredible experience it was. Well, so, I mean, you've shared some of those experiences, but do you have any advice? I mean, I, I know you saw your parents model at least how to, how to make it work, uh, for a, a long period of time. Um, and it sounds like you and, um, Linda were both thoughtful, uh, and selective about, uh, who you wanted and what you wanted in a, in a partner. Um, and, and there sounds like there's plenty of, um, mutual respect. Uh, that, that's a question that I receive from time to time as well. Just, uh, <laughs> I was doing my long run yesterday and totally wasn't expecting it at all. And uh, Amy stopped by with about five miles to go or eight K to go. And I don't wear my glasses when I'm running other than sunglasses. So I really can't see very well other than just like shadow. <laughs> so I, I see a minivan coming and then all of a sudden Amy's on the passenger side. And it's like, why are you there? But it, I mean, it was, I could hardly see her. And then I didn't realize she was driving out there. I was like, Oh cool. You know, or one of our, teenage daughters who's learning how to drive their drove out here. It's a beautiful day. That's great. Um, but she was driving out to actually bring me uh, a cold beverage. And, um, it sounds like she might have <laughs> had some refreshments, some other refreshments, uh, to share, but I was, I was so locked in that I didn't even realize that they were stopping and I didn't have my phone on. So she couldn't get a hold of me to be like, Hey, stop We're we have water for you. Um, so there was some honking and shouting and eventually I, I found <laughs> cold beverage but so sometimes i'm asked you know how does how does that work and and i i feel like in some ways i've i've shared some of those same experiences um we've we've trained for runs together or or pushed i've pushed the kids while she's been doing her workout or vice versa she's been on the bike um but a lot of it does have have to happen separately um and so how do you yeah how do you juggle that or how do you shuffle that um you mentioned a schedule. Do you have any other tips or any other ideas of how? My yeah, how to make it. My work? wife is flawless at and at scheduling. I mean, so much of it comes down to planning. Exactly that, and the like. My Google Calendar scares people when they see it for the first time. <laughs> They're like, "What the hell is this? Why is why is there so much stuff in there?" And it's because the only way to make this work with everything, with a, we have one, I'm, with a family, one child is hard enough. I can't imagine more than that. 
Um, but the only way to make it work is with everybody being on the same page, but more importantly, the communication and the planning. And my wife is flawless at pulling up the monthly calendar as to where our son needs to be when, who's doing what, how we're going to do that. And then I have my my work stuff that goes in the calendar. So then it's based what we have available outside of that. And um, certainly one thing that we are fortunate for is that Linda's mother, my mother-in-law actually does live with us. So she offers a level of assistance that um, is priceless to us. And I really couldn't imagine what it would be like without her. Um, <clears throat> she's not available to us 24 seven by any stretch, but she does make herself available to us quite a lot. And I have, her and Linda has her to thank as well for what we've been able to do since having read what is almost five years ago now. Um, so certainly the planning is the main thing, the communication being there, uh, but having that little bit of family assistance goes a long ways. Um, since we've moved to Chilliwack, which we did just under a year ago, we've also now got a really good daycare and an outdoor school that, that Reed goes to. So, um, you know, when Reed goes to outdoor school for, uh, two and a half hours, Linda gets, she drops him off and gets a run in and comes back. So you're working, you're working with what you've got and really planning and scheduling everything as much as possible. That's great. I would imagine as a, as a race director, it's also helpful to have everything scheduled, um, and mapped out. Um, and I, I was wondering if, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about that, um, in addition to being, you know, an accomplished runner, very, very few runners, especially in the trail and ultra space <laughs> can, can live, um, comfortably off of just what you can get from sponsors. Some can, but very few can. And so in addition yeah. to that, you, uh, um, you also direct races. How did, how exactly did you get into race directing and, and why did you choose to go? into race directing. Yeah. The, um, so we, we have to go all the way back to kind of 2010. And at that time, 2010, I finished sixth at Western States. I won the hurt 100 in a course record time that year. I set the FKT on the West coast trail on Vancouver Island and the East coast trail in Newfoundland, 14 days apart. I was having a phenomenal year, but I was also seeing that there's there was there was very limited money in ultra running and there was even less available to Canadians and i was realizing that no matter how how good i got no matter how far i got in the sport i was never going to make a living off of it and even if i did it would be so fleeting that it would be foolhardy to pursue that as a serious option and then I broke my foot and, uh, I, during the 2000, I think it was three years through two and a half to three years, 2008, nine and 10, I was actually working for Catherine Stanton who owned five peaks before you guys did. And I was her course manager for her BC races. And I also worked for a local organization called the mind over mountain adventure races. And I, directed one of the races and was a course designer for one of those. And then I did course management for Spartan Western Canada for a year in there as well. So I <clears throat> was working and run retail, 
was an accomplished runner who was building my resume and was working uh, with events, mostly in a course management role um, to, um, to help out with the income. And then at the end of 2010, while I was on crutches with a broken foot, a race formerly known as Stormy was handed to me because it didn't happen in 2010 when it was supposed to. It, it, was, it changed ownership, and both people kind of pointed the other way as to whose fault it was that the race didn't get off the ground that year. And then they, one, the person who had the rights for it offered it to me. So I said, I've always, Stormy was the first ultra I ever ran at 64 kilometers in length. It was the first 100 miler I ever ran in 2008. Uh, it was in Squamish. I had a strong emotional connection to the event, obviously. But I always thought that it, there were ways to improve the event uh, course-wise. And it was a race that was built off of a mountain bike course. And it was 10 years further on. And the trail system in Squamish had evolved so much that I thought, if I was the race director, you know, I'd, I'd make these changes. So the race was handed to me, the rights to it. And I said as long as I can do rebrand it, redesign the course and, and we'll keep the historical weekend. And they said, sure, just make it happen. We just want the race to continue on. So that became the Squamish 50 and we rebranded it because stormy had unfortunately through 10 years, just really become an event that most people outside of Squamish overlooked. And I thought it needed a new brand to rejuvenate the, to give it a fresh set of, eyes in front of people looking at it. Um, so the Squamish 50 in 2011 ended up selling out for the first time at, uh, I think it was 300 people that year. The most they'd ever gotten prior to that was 150. And while that was happening, I um, designed a 50 mile course for Catherine through called Meet Your Maker that happened in Whistler for a couple of years. And, uh, and Linda actually came up with the name for that course while her and I were driving back from Manning Park from a camping trip. And I remember calling Catherine as soon as we got service and saying, we've got the name. It's got to be Meet Your Maker. And it took a lot of selling to get her to embrace the name. She wanted to call it BC Ultra at the time. So I was very happy that we, we got Meet Your Maker to be the name. And, and Linda um, gets the credit for that one. So I had been working with other people, uh, almost apprenticing, if you will. And then I was given, kind of gifted this opportunity to take a race to life myself. And through doing that, this Jeff Langford, who has been my, my partner in events since day one, since late 2010 going into 2011, I used to do Jeff Langford's adventure racing events. And I saw someone who was really skilled at at a percentage of their business and was, was deficient at a percentage of their business. And what I saw was a business partner that would complement, we would complement each other entirely where my strengths would, would bring up his weaknesses and certainly vice versa. His strengths really brought up my weaknesses. So we met together, talked about things, launched Squamish 50 together and I'm proud to say nine years on with this person, we've, as business partners, never actually had a, a, a serious fight and rarely have an argument. Um, so I've chosen the right business partner there. And then we launched and built that into the Coast Mountain Trail series, which is now Coast Mountain Trail Running. But this was 2011 
that we brought that to life and it wasn't working. It In the first year, Coast Mountain Trail series, um, we lost money on every race and I actually had to get a job at a sushi restaurant to pay my bills that year um, because I wasn't making enough money with everything else. In the second year, we were still losing money. And at the beginning of the third year, Jeff had a conversation with me. The only real argument we've really had about killing it and, uh, and not seeing the, the need to go forth. And I managed to talk him into sticking with it. And the very next race, the first race in our third year was the first race that ever actually made money. And every race from year three through this was to be the eighth year of Coast Mountain Trail running. Um, every race got more registrations and a little bit bigger year after year from that point in time. So it was a really, really tough go to start with, uh, a lot of uncertainty with it. And But when I was on crutches and forced to the sidelines from running, I was faced with what I call my mortality as a runner. And it was like my mortality as an ultra runner or somebody in the scene of ultra running. And I saw the futility again of pursuing, like just trying to be a high level runner as though that were going to give me a connection to the sport for an indefinite period of time and saw the avenue of race directing as being the way that I would still be a part of ultra running in 20 years. I would still have something. I would have a race. I would still be able to connect with the community. I would still be able to be fostering those relationships. So I actually consider breaking my foot in 2010, and it ended up being twice. I broke it again a few months later and was on non-weight-bearing crutches for eight and a half out of 12 months, and it was horrific at that point. But what I took away from it was what is now my livelihood, and the, the race directing led to a coaching business. And again, picked a really good partner for that, Eric Carter being my partner in Ridgeline Athletics Coaching Business. And uh, our our strengths and weaknesses really complement each other. And now I could not be prouder. Like my proudest accomplishment, one of, certainly outside of family and, and whatnot, is the fact that I am 43 years old and I make my living 100% entirely in the ultra running, trail running sphere. And it's through directing events and coaching runners. And, you know, I am a sponsored athlete, but there's no money in being, uh, there's just not like, it's just, it's, it's a people who think there is, um, are, are ill-informed most times. So I make my living by working two jobs and I work almost nonstop for three months in the summer and work a full-time gig on outside of that throughout the year, uh, working on this the whole way through. And again, going back to needing to keep control of things, I need to work to keep my businesses healthy. I need to work to support my family. I need to work to be with my family. And the third thing outside of family and work is my running and my competing. And at that point, it becomes a bit of a luxury to be able to do it because the only thing of those three that can fall by the wayside and still allow life to proceed as normal is my, my, at my running and my training. If the business falters or if family falters, then there's bigger problems. So my running needs to be squeezed into everything else, which is where the scheduling comes in, which is where the controlling my time as much as possible stem from is I only have so many hours in a day. A lot of them are dedicated to work. The rest are dedicated to family. A few of them are dedicated to training. 
there's just not any other free time that I would want to spend on social media rather than with my, my family watching my child grow up. I, well, I, I appreciate you giving us um, the background. Um, I didn't know all of that, and <laughs> I assume not everyone else did either. And um, and I'm um, I think it it puts into perspective um, the amount of work that actually does go into putting on races um, before doing what Amy and I do now. Um, most of the race directing that I did was, was volunteer and kind of not for profit or, you know, the, the goal was basically whatever, whatever you ended up with, it was to benefit some cause or whatever, mm-hmm. which I, you do with your races as well. But, but it wasn't, that wasn't my job. That was just to try and like give back and, and kind of build community and things. Um, and it, yeah. and there's a place for that. But even with those, like that's what blew me away. Even with those, when when we were trying to like make the races as inexpensive as possible, people were asking for a medal for all finishers. They were asking for, at the time, tech shirts were kind of all the rage. (laughs) We want a name brand tech shirt and a medal and chip timing for for like a 5K. And it was like, um, you realize it's like five bucks a person just for the chip. And then it, it's probably five bucks for your metal. And you want a $40 retail t-shirt. You just do the math right there. And let's figure out how much <laughs> you're giving to these kids who can't put shoes on their feet. Like, how does that work? Um, and so unless you're getting like a huge sponsor from someone else, like, and if people want kind of this platinum, <laughs> Option experience, yeah, exactly. I mean, everything costs money in race directing. Yeah, and and then if they if they actually want their event to be directed well, and they want it communicated, and they want the website to be clear, it's like someone has to do that work, and and usually it's multiple people have to do that work, and eventually it becomes full time jobs for some people, and um, no one's rolling in it, <laughs> or very few are no. Are rolling. Most of us are working way more hours than we were before <laughs> in the oh. in the race. Uh, uh, yeah, I've never lacked work ethic, but certainly, you know, you you couldn't make a go of this without that. And um, I've also been fortunate through again leaving home at nineteen with five hundred dollars in my pocket to be able to make ends meet with uh, with relatively little. So I was able to get through some lean years there to get to where we are. And the goal was never to to get rich doing this; it was to make a living. And to then find a way to create community and to give back. And I, again, looking back, feel so fortunate that we've gotten to that point where in 2019, we donated over $60,000 to local trail and search and rescue organizations. We've now donated over $150,000 since we started. And this, this year going forward from 2020, we were we we had worked it out to be able to donate over sixty thousand dollars a year every year from here on out, um, well, and it feels it feels really good to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, again, I haven't even I haven't even done one of your races, but I I haven't met a single person who has done one of your races who doesn't want to go back and and run a, a race again, or who hasn't just like said kind of over the top glowing um, responses of well we're really like so much of that goes to goes to our volunteers i mean the volunteers and i this is this is i hear this from international runners 
every year in Squamish. The number one piece of feedback is people cross the finish line, they have their experience, and they just look at me and go, how do you get the volunteers to be so amazing? It's like the they're, they, they because the culture here on the coast has been so strong for so long and Squamish has become this gathering for our community in the summer, we have 300 volunteers for that race and we have to cap the, the registration for volunteers and they blow people's minds because they're so incredible at what they do and ours as well. And then one of the groups who has maintained our final aid station at the Squamish 50, they now have their own um, Twitter handle for Squamish 50 far, far side. And every year they surprise us with what their theme ends up being. So they keep it a secret and then myself and Jeff have to visit, we, we do anyways, but visit that aid station at some point throughout the weekend to see what they've done. And they've done Game of Thrones, um, where <clears throat> the forest was littered with stakes with my bleeding head off the top and, and Jeff Langford's as well. And they did the Barkley a couple of years ago. And the guy who oversees it, uh, Kyle Conway, apparently they were planning a Barkley theme right down to like the Bugles candy and uh and one of his neighbors was cleaning out the garage and all of a sudden there was this tupperware bin full of historic british columbia license plates and he just looked at him and said what are those can i borrow them for a week and the the aid station at the end of squamish 52 years ago was an exact rendering of what the Barkley looks like from the license plates on out. And again, we have no idea what's going to happen until we show up. Like that is how phenomenal our volunteers are. And they are really at the core of the Squamish 50 experience that so many people hold dear and do rave about after they've been there. That's, that's so good to hear. And um, it, it just adds to what I have already heard. And um so for those who who haven't done one of Gary's races, um, we certainly recommend you know Squamish fifty or fifty fifty. There's fifty k and a fifty miler um, that are world famous um, in in just one of the most breathtakingly beautiful parts of the world um, in Squamish BC. Um, but you also have, like you said, the the Coast Mountain Trail running um, a number of races under that banner as well. So if uh, if you get the chance, um, check them out and see um, see what you can do. If uh, whether you are a, a trail runner or an ultra runner, or or whether you just want to come explore a beautiful place, um, definitely check those out. Now, and I mean, uh, right back at you guys. I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but you know, Five Peaks is such a historic race in the history, the development of trail running in Canada. It was my first ever trail race, along with a lot of other people who became established mm-hmm. runners in the sport. Um, we, we've started right there and that's what you and you and Amy oversee as well. So don't, don't miss out on, on making sure you mention, mention that to people as well. Five Peaks is a wonderful race run organization with events all over Canada. And I can't even under, I can't even believe the magnitude of what you guys have to manage for everything there. Thank you. Um, I, most of that credit goes to Amy as far as the administrative stuff, but we also have, um, really good race directors in each region. And, um, at the core of all of that is, is the, the volunteer team and the ambassadors and the volunteer coordinators. And, um, 
that's another piece that most people don't realize is that um, with a lot with a lot of major city marathons and 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 things, the the volunteer coordinators would be paid positions or that like that maybe even a salaried position kind of thing. Like that's a someone's full time job. Um, yeah. Even, even with what we're doing uh, at the national level or at a regional level, those are pretty time intensive jobs and positions and um and it's um it's humbling to see how many people um for the five peaks races for some of the other races that we do people that they kind of just come out of the woodwork that that are used to being in charge and and somehow they're willing to like had federal judges like come out and be or or like marshals you know and, and like people who uh, should not be under me in ter- in terms of like <laughs> line of command and stuff like that. And they are happy as the clam, you know, to just like be out there and you just tell me where you need to be. Tell me um, what you need me to do. And, and, you know, like for ultras, those, those aren't often um, short little um, stints either. Like the, <laughs> usually the volunteers are out there as, as long as the runners or, or unless you put them in shifts and things. And, <laughs> yeah. Like, Sometimes longer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, they, they may be there out, out there as long as the race directors and, and, and they keep coming back. And so um, that's one of the most humbling parts about being in the, the directing side of things is, is to just see how many people are, are so willing to give back to the sport and the community and, and to other people um, in large part because they, they have felt it themselves and they, they mm-hmm. want to. And that's, that really is a beautiful thing. So uh, I still need to get out and do one of your races. I don't, I, I want to run the least technical um, and the, and the warmest um, and the least wet. <laughs> Oh, okay. There's some, there's some stipulations here. I see. <laughs> no, I, uh, I just, I want to have a, a fighting chance, you know, like I, I'm a cherry. <laughs> so I, I need to, I need to remove my weaknesses, um, because I can't <laughs> prepare specifically, uh, for some of uh, what I would encounter. Um, but, uh, I, I did have a question about that, um, related to a, a race that, um, where you really broke onto the scene when you, when you won the hurt and, and set a course record at the, at the hurt 100. Um, now the hurt is a, um, stands for Hawaii ultra runners, uh, ultra runner team, or is that, is that correct? Hawaiian ultra running team. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Uh, the hurt is an iconic hundred miler. Um, although it is at, level because it's on (laughs) on oahu Oahu. Um, (laughs) it is not um an easy hundred um in fact it's a very technical very rooty rocky often wet slick um and and actually there's over twenty thousand feet of gain is that correct Twenty five thousand. yeah you guys got to see it in january yeah, uh, which I feel terrible that we somehow missed you and didn't get to connect after the fact. But um, I, I am wondering how you were able to prepare for that during um, a Canadian winter. Uh, how did how did you train for the heat, the humidity, um, and and the technicality of of that course? Yeah. Then- so the first time I ever went to Oahu was in January of 2010. 
And now we've been to Hawaii 15 times. <laughs> so it's, uh, I mean, first and foremost, it's a straight shot, six hour flight that costs the least, the cheapest I've gotten there for is $250 return. The most I've ever spent, I think is $405. So, and now we have friends that way that we stay with. So it becomes a mostly cost-effective trip for us, but mm-hmm. Hawaii is a, is a very close link for, for Vancouver. Um, <clears throat> so when uh, you're training for the hurt, you're doing your mileage through November and December. And I, at the time was working a run retail shop and there was, uh, so I was working five days a week. I had Wednesdays and Saturdays off for my long runs. And then over the holidays, you would end up with, um, with uh, the holidays over Christmas and New Year's as well. So this was also, this was pre-Linda and this was pre-child. Um, looking back on my mileage and my training from what was the end of 2009 to go to 2010, it's, um, I've had to accept that I'm at a very different point and place in my life now. And I can't just flick a switch and mimic what I used to do because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But my volume that <coughs> month, I think was, um, <clears throat> was in the range of 500 miles of running, um, on North shore terrain. And I ran my biggest ever training block where I did, I did 227 kilometers on trails in a week and I did 300 kilometers in 10 days. Uh, so I did 20 miles, 20 miles a day for 10 days. And I, I finished that off by doing a 50 K race. So I ran 250 kilometers in nine days. And then I ran a 50 K race, a flat 50 K race in Vancouver on new year's day to get to 300. And I think I was third in the 50 K. So I knew when I flew to Hawaii that my fitness was there. And then I set foot on the, <clears throat> the hurt course three days before the race. And I, I just had this, this just sense of like, wow, this is identical to what I love to run on the North shore of Van- North Vancouver. Like you could not replicate closer terrain, I think anywhere than what you get on Hawaiian technical trails and North shore Vancouver technical trails. Um, I hadn't done any heat training or anything else. It gets up to 20 to 25 degrees, but there's typically an onshore breeze. I think heat training could have benefit, but I never, I never had to. Um, There's only one year of all the years I ran it that I should have, that I had a, 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 a tough go because it did get warmer and I didn't do the heat training, but showed up in January, 2010. And I was so confident in where I was as a runner. And this was only the second hundred miler I had ever run. So my second ever hundred mile race and the race started and I started walking up the first climb and I found myself back in like 15th place or something. And it wasn't until mile 15 that I moved up into the lead group. And then it was mile 30 that I took the lead for the race so I was very calculated and confident in my, my, my starting conservative and working my way into it. But I also had, so Jeff Rose had the course record and it was 20 hours and 20 minutes. And I had all of his course record splits taped to all my drop bags and written on my bib. So I went there with a purpose. I was definitely shooting to break course record. And, uh, and I, in hindsight, just, it's incredible that I, I basically ran almost identical to what I scheduled myself to run in advance of the race. Wow. 
I I wasn't sure that, or I, I wasn't aware that you were living in um, in Vancouver at the time. I knew that you had had a stint here in in uh, Alberta in the Banff area, and so I wasn't sure at which time or at what time you moved. I moved to Whistler in two thousand and four, and then I went Whistler, Pemberton, Squamish, and then in two thousand and eight, I moved to North Vancouver. Okay, nice. Well. Um, I'm still blown away. I, uh, like you mentioned, our family happened to be there. Um, we didn't even, it, it wasn't planned <laughs> that we, we would be there around the hurt weekend. And, uh, <laughs> uh, we just realized that we were going to be there, um, on the same weekend and, and saw that you were racing. Um, and, uh, we did see Linda and Reed, um, and had hoped yep. to see you and, um, but we were dealing with a, a baby who didn't sleep well through the flight the night before. And we went <laughs> back and check out of the hotel and meet up with the rest of my family. Um, we were meeting up for a family reunion out there. And so we missed yeah, you. Yeah, which is super cool. You were just happened to be there. I didn't make it any easier. I only ran 40 miles and then called it a race. So it wasn't like I was, I was, it wasn't like you could predict how to find me. So no, no stress at all. And um, how was your experience on Oahu? Uh, it was, it was beautiful. I, I actually, um, went to school out there for a couple of years, um, in the early two thousands. And, uh, but the weird part is it was on the North shore of Oahu. And so I, and, and this was just, you know, I ran cross country and I ran the road races and stuff and occasionally went to the university of Hawaii to run some of the all comers track meets. But as far as like, even being aware of the the hurt community <laughs> that didn't happen until much later in life that I was like, well, how, how did I not realize that that was going on? <laughs> and so now it's, um, it's certainly a pull to go back. That was the first time in, in several years since I had been back to Oahu. Um, and it, it just so happened that my, I have a, a younger sister whose, whose husband's stationed in the military out on Oahu. There's a pretty big U S military presence out there. Yeah, so absolutely. They're fortunate to be able to live in Hawaii um, <laughs> on Uncle Sam's dime, and um, <laughs> and uh, and so they were there, and, and my dad actually had a, a meeting out there, um, and and so it was kind of like, well, <laughs> if some members of our family are there, why don't we all just go? It's it's January. Who who wants to be where they're at in January? So it was like, yeah, sign us up. Uh, we'll we'll meet you there. And so, um, yeah, I was hoping to get to see you. We did bump into some other. Um, runners uh from from the vancouver area in fact some other race directors um uh jenny and christina were there yeah they're awesome they do fraser rally trail races here uh right out my well katrina lives just up the street from us but we've never run into her uh on the local trails but they're wonderful they just started their race organization a year ago um yeah just yeah and they've done they've done great things with um in in 12 months and then they were launching another race this year here in chilliwack a 50k uh in august uh july or august on mount sheen which will be just stunningly beautiful assuming they get a chance to run it this year yeah yeah well that's one of the fun parts about the sport is that you know um we met jenny and i i met christina um i think through one of your film um yeah one of the one of the screenings uh film um i think they won like a a coaching plan. And so I connected with them that way. And then all of a sudden we're just hanging out at the aid station at the hurt and we get to, uh, <laughs> so anyway, it's a small world. 
Um, one of the uh, one of the fun things actually that's come out of the hurt world over the years is you mentioned the strong military presence. There's also a strong Navy SEAL presence, and yeah. there's nothing Navy SEALs love more than a daunting challenge. So there's been quite a few of them that have lined up for the Hurt 100 over the years, and uh, and I've gotten to know quite a few of them through the Hurt 100, and um, and become good friends. We we work with with one uh, and our coaching brand. Uh, through Ridgeline Athletics, and then um, and then one actually came up to visit me in Chilliwack uh, a few months back to get in some training, mountain training, running training. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I can actually say that like I've got three friends that are, are actual Navy SEALs, which sounds kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, there there definitely is um, a, a Navy SEAL presence. There's a there's a a strong ultra runner, Rod Bean. Um, his his dad was seal wasn't he or is there i don't know how yeah that works. his dad his dad did pass um did pass away on oahu many years ago but on the hurt 100 course there's a bench in honor of his father so you run past bean bench uh during the race which is super cool so any of us that know rod and know any of the story always always pay our respects and say hi to his uh to him or his father when we're passing by there yeah that's awesome. Well, it, it, it inspired me. Part of, part of my questions were selfish because, um, uh, I've never run a hundred miler and I, uh, I wouldn't mind making the hurt know that. one of my hundred miler or maybe my only hundred miler. I, I, there aren't many that really like call to me, but that's one. And, and Western is probably the only other one that really says that that's in my wheelhouse and, and kind of just would be a fun destination to go as a family. So um, well, I'll just throw this out there. If I'm not also running the hurt that same year, maybe we can, if you, uh, eventually are looking for a pacer, maybe we should talk. Let's do it. I, okay. <laughs> We've got it uh, recorded now and I'm not going to edit that out. So, um, well, but- I need you to know one thing. I'm 10 and 0 as a pacer. Okay. 10 and 0 for hundred mile finishes. And, and I think five or six of those were rookies. So wow. I, I actually really, it's, um, so Cascade Crest 100 Miler was asking for people to post some of their memories of the race. And both uh, Ben Gibbard and Ethan Newberry posted today about their 100 mile experience there. And I paced both of them and they were both virgin 100 mile runners. And those are some of the most meaningful connections that I've had. And some of the most wonderful experiences in ultra running period is actually pacing other people during their pursuit. And I was just thinking very recently, it's been far too long since I paced somebody at a race I need to change that. And if I didn't know you hadn't run a hundred miler before, I had no idea. So if you're going to run a hundred miles and you're going to do it at hurt and you would be okay with me sharing 20 miles or so with you, I would be honored to be a part of that experience. Well, I, I would be, I, I can't think of, of anyone I would rather have there, uh, both because of who you are and also because of your experience and course knowledge and, and all the rest. I, I think it would be a lot of fun. Um, so to be continued. I, I don't know when, there you go. when you figure out how to, <laughs> how to make that work, but um, <laughs> yeah, that's giving me something to look forward to one of these winters. Uh, yeah, sure. there you go. Perfect. <laughs> um, well, there's so much that we could talk about. Um, um, but one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you in addition to all the other um, things that we've already been able to discuss is um is about this race season and um, just kind of how people are adapting and adjusting to this new normal. And, um, you know, you did chat with Dylan a bit about it. Um, 
you and your race organization, um, I would say have been very forward thinking and very transparent and made the very tough call to, um, cancel most of the races mm-hmm. that you have scheduled for 2020. Um, and again, I don't want to do repeat too much, but I, I know that not everyone will have heard um, your interview with Dylan by this point. And so I'm just wondering if you could, if you could just talk through a little bit of that. Um, we'll, we will um, put a link to it, but um, how you came to that decision. Um, and- yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been <clears throat> certainly the, the month of March was one of the worst months I've, I've had as a, as an adult human being with everything that, um, that went South based on the early uh, unfoldings of the COVID-19 outbreak and, um, prime amongst that was the hard decisions that my partner, Jeff and I with events had to make, uh, that we had to cancel a race 36 hours out to begin. And then we obviously had to cancel. There was another race three three weeks later that would, would fall by the wayside. But everything after that was up for debate, a race at the end of May, a race at the end of July, and a race at the, the middle of August and at the end of September. And through endless dialogue and back and forth for a week where I was barely sleeping at night because I just couldn't comprehend the magnitude of what we were up against and what we, we needed to communicate and, and, and to spearhead was... Um, it appeared to us that uh, because our events have grown to a point where the smallest race is 450 people and the largest race with Squamish, when you include volunteers uh, and uh, volunteers, runners, and then friends and family, we're well over 2,000 people in Squamish. So the And then as an organization, as you know, as you alluded to earlier, I mean – these organizations don't run themselves. The website doesn't run itself. The, uh, you know, everything costs money again, like chip timing for Squamish is like $6,000. Like there are all these expenses that, that are on, that are higher than people would realize just to run your, your event company from the start. So given that we're already at the end of March at this point, you're already tens of thousands of dollars into your production schedule for the year. But what became crystal clear for us was, if we proceeded another five weeks or so, we would then be on the hook for an additional hundred plus thousand dollars in production costs that we could, we would not be able to recuperate. And we were weighing, juxtaposing that with the reality of, will we be allowed to host a 2000 person event in August? And then the realization that people travel from around the world to come to Squamish 50 and people around the world are on lockdown right now. Some people aren't allowed to leave their, their condo, their small space. So what's our social obligation as well to ask runners who are training for this race to possibly try to make exceptions to their local rules or, you know, how many people out there have registered for the 50-50 and are panicking in Italy, as an example, and trying to change or work against the, the rules that are in place. So all of all of these variables came into play. And the reality is, Bottom line, you couldn't convince me then and even less so now that we were going to be sanctioned to have a 2000 person gathering in the middle of August. So we were making this decision five months in advance. And what we were really doing was researching as much as possible what the trends were around the world, because you get a bit of an a bit of insight into the future by seeing how it's unfolded in other countries and what could happen here. So we 
<clears throat> with the with the size of Squamish, we realized that we really had to had no other option. And again, if we went forward five weeks, we'd be in a much different situation. So we had to email over 3000 runners for those races and cancel those races and offer a percentage of deferred race entry fee to 2021 based on how far along in the production schedule we were. Now, the reality is we're still losing money and we were being as generous as possible, losing as little as we could afford to lose by offering these percentage of deferred costs. And that would spread our losses over two years rather than a single year. The only race we didn't cancel it at the time is our race in Whistler at the end of September. And that is something that will be reassessed in the coming weeks. So um, we sent out an email to over 3,000 runners and we had over 300 responses. And 95% of those responses were incredible, supportive, genuine, um, just outpouring of support. And a percentage of people that amazingly had basically said, listen, for Squamish, it was a 75% deferral of race entry fees to next year. And people were emailing us and saying, I just want a guaranteed spot for next year. Keep the 75%. I know you guys are going to need it to get through the next two years. I'll pay 100% when registration comes up for next year. So you're reading these emails and you just it brings tears to your eyes. And then the other end of the spectrum is there's a grouping of people who, based on whatever variables and circumstances they're up against, react very um, belligerently. And we found a way to give those, those, those people, give ourselves enough time to respond to those people with empathy. We absolutely refunded every single person that either demanded or pleasantly requested a refund for whatever reason. We were not about to hold money from people. And by and large, now four weeks further on, I think it's almost to the day that this started, um, it seems like the community has supported us and accepted things and it's been really something to see. Um, so then we, in that email where we were communicating, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is why we believe Squamish won't happen in five months, whether you agree or not, this is really what, what, what the tea leaves are saying to us. Mm -hmm. And then we said, you know, if we can help you, please let us know, which we did help anyone that asked for the assistance. And then we said, now ways you can help us if you're looking to do so, we're going to launch a merchandise store because that is something we can sell where you get a product and we get a, a margin of profit off of that. And the merchandise store was a huge success. I couldn't believe, I can't believe how much merchandise we managed to sell. So, and then someone broke into our events trailer on the last day of March and stole $1,500 worth of our race supplies, including our generator. And I tweeted out something along the lines of like, well, this was a terrible month. <laughs> like this just happened. And I really hope April ends up being better than this. Yeah. And one of our runners read this, started unbeknownst to us a GoFundMe. And 12 hours later, we had $1,500 donated back to us from our runners to cover our lost costs from the theft. So as race organizers, we're just feeling like the love from everybody. And then almost feeling a level of guilt of like, well, this is incredible how much support we're getting. I know not every race organization is in the same situation. Everybody, every race organization everywhere is, is up against a different set of variables from where they were in their registration cycle for generating revenue for their, for their race on through to what their local community is advising if they can host a race or not. So 
we wanted to find a way to do something where all races could benefit from it. And we launched, uh, so we got our graphic designer to design a head wrap, a buff that says, I support local race directors. And it's a gorgeous design, multifaceted, very bright and colorful. And then we launched this and for 25 Canadian dollars, you can purchase a buff and it'll ship anywhere in North America included in that. That's about 18 US dollars. And then you, the purchaser, decides who the, the profits go to. So we've opened it up to say, buy this from us. We'll get you your, your head wrap and then we'll take the profit margin for that and donate it to whichever organization you want to support in your local community. And this felt good to be able to do something that was going to benefit other organizations. And I knew we were going to talk about this, so I looked it up right before we got on the phone. We have sold $23,000 worth of head wraps and benefited thus far 150 different race organizations across North America. Now, clearly a percentage of those is, is a, a handful of dollars from a, a couple of individual sales. But on the, on the high end, there are some race organizations that have generated thousands of dollars of revenue from their customers buying buffs in honor of their organization. So we'll do this through the end of April, and then we'll cut it on May 1st, and we'll issue the, the checks or the PayPal emails out to each race organization, including Five Peaks. Five Peaks, I think, has had like $700 in buff sales dedicated to you guys already. Um, so it was, it's a bit of a project and my, my business partner, who's the very much the, um, the analytical side of things was like, this is going to be hard to deliver on. And I was like, yes, I know. (laughs) And, and we'll find a way and we will find a way and and it's going to work out. And and both of us agree it it was the right thing to do. And we're really happy that we were able to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I personally, as a beneficiary, but also just as as a member of the community, um, even if I weren't a, a race director, uh, I, I want to thank you. Um, and and as a fellow race director, I want to thank you um, not only for this extreme effort, um, but also um, I, I don't I don't know if other people feel this or understand this, but but it, and I do think it's somewhat unique to our sport of, of trail and ultra running, but I, I don't feel like we're competitors and you've never made me feel like we're competitors. And I hope I've never made you feel like we're competitors as, as coaches of athletes or as, as race directors. Um, and one of the things that I really admire about you, um, is, is that you, you don't give this cutthroat dog eat dog or, or even territorial, um, vibe and and there are some people that do <laughs> uh give that vibe where they feel like oh yeah we, we experience that sometimes too is coming after their whatever their job their their livelihood and and i mean right now i, I understand it everyone everyone's trying to figure out how to feed their families um and pay the bills but um my you know, take on it which i think is yours as well is that we all prosper from having a healthy trail running scene and there needs to be something for everybody. And um, a friend of a friend, I was out on a group run, a run with two guys. This had to be 10 years. No, wait, uh, Squamish would have been, is nine this year. This is probably six years ago. 
And we're in the middle of the run and all of a sudden he just, he just turned to me and he's like, you know, Gary, I got to be honest with you. Like not every race needs to be the Squamish 50. And I just was like, you know what? You're a hundred percent right. There needs to be, there always should be something for everybody. This sport was founded by people creating small local events, low key gatherings, $25 registration fees, three course flags, and a, a stick off the course was like your finish award. And that should always be there. There should always be something for everybody so that you can do a race like Squamish 50 if you want, but that's not everybody's cup of tea. Not everybody wants to be a part of a 2000 person racing, running, gathering. A lot of people would like to be a part of a race that has 125 people. So we all prosper by having a healthy trail running scene and, and the community prospers by having more people involved in it. I, I agree a hundred percent. And I, I really appreciate that. You're not just saying that though, that you, you personify that you embody that. And, and I, I feel like anyone who has met you or, or is listening to you feels that, um, one thing that you have, I feel like you've done a good job of, of doing, not not only in helping me, but uh, you mentioned that Linda's doing the R of Ipa Strong 100 miles in seven days. Now, I I saw something fairly recently that you were gonna you were gonna tackle 100. <laughs> part of yeah. uh, the plan, or well, I uh, so yes, we wanted to support Jamil to to begin with. He's definitely showing the rest of us how to produce virtual races. It's pretty impressive. Um, and uh, I was so when we bought a treadmill in December for the first time, and it's a treadmill that goes up to forty percent grade and down to six. And your brother appears on it quite frequently, actually, <laughs> taking people through runs around the world, which is pretty funny. Um, and. Uh, when we first got the treadmill, we were like a weekend. I'd run on it twice for like 45 total minutes. And I said to Linda, you know, I'd like to run 100 miles on this thing one day and do 30,000 feet of climbing and try to do it in under 24 hours. And she was like, you've never run on a treadmill for more than two consecutive hours. Like, what the heck is wrong with you? It's like, I don't know. It just seems like it'd be a fun challenge. So this fell by the wayside once Barkley training hit and I started getting outdoors and then once Barkley was canceled and COVID unfolded, like I'm not even going to pretend that I didn't go through a period of depression and I didn't really struggle for, for a, a stretch there to, to just get back to <clears throat> feeling normal again. And I know everybody is going through stuff and it's so unpredictable. Like you will have good days and bad days every single week and you don't always know which is going to be which. Um, and it took me a period of three weeks to finally get back to training or just going outside and doing things more regularly again. So I went from the fittest, like I'd almost ever been to doing very little because of the disappointment and frustration with things. And then Jamil launched his virtual race around that time frame, And then I looked at it and said, you know, April 25th, 26th of the last two days, I bet I could get myself to a place where I could attempt this hundred mile treadmill run over those dates. So this weekend, Friday morning, I'll start. And um, I'm not convinced that I'm going to get under 24 hours. I I'm, I got a couple of little tiny things going on. So um, I am giving myself up to 40 hours to do it. So if I have to step aside and take a nap or whatever else, that's totally fine. But this weekend, I'm going to find a way to get through 100 miles on the treadmill in 
40 hours or less, and I'm going to incorporate 30,000 feet of climbing. And I've already pre-purchased the belt buckle, <laughs> so I've got to get it done. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, uh, that was similar to when I, I ran 50. Um, I was asked, like, maybe 50K into it. Um, so so what happened, like, what happens if you don't finish? And I was like, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. And they're, they're like, well, why are you doing this? Um, and I, I was like, well, I needed a treadmill. And they're like, but you already have the treadmill at your house. Right. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. They're not going to come and take the treadmill from you. And they're like, yeah, but it's just, I said I would do this. So that's, I'm going to do this. It's not, it, you don't, you don't buy the buckle and then not, not yeah. finish the race. So, yeah. And it's funny because the buckle was an add on purchase. And I really, I really looked at it and went, if I don't buy the buckle, I'm going to find an excuse not to do it. And I would because I got a couple of like small things where those, those small things you could talk yourself out of. And, and I bought, I bought the buckle and that's all I need to just step on the treadmill and, and just keep it, keep it moving until I get through the distance. Nice. Um, is that going to be broadcast um or is linda gonna help uh yeah so linda's she's more excited than i am it's really funny she's just like she she's um jumping around with excitement over me getting a chance to do this this weekend so she i think she said she wants to do like hourly or every other hour updates where she'll i don't know do um something instagram live or whatever ends up being the case i might stream it i think it'd be the most boring thing in the world to stream but a few people have asked so um, I might just put the computer on the stream in the background and just have it rolling for, for that, but we'll do something. So yeah, I, Linda wants to come in and she's already thinking about how to like communicate the distance and the stuff I've done on like a little placard that she can hold in front of the camera or something. So we'll, we'll do that. All right. Well, uh, I'll try and get this out before the attempt. Um, and so no pressure, <laughs> um, can, can hear this and, and follow along. Um, and and so all the best to to Linda as she finishes this um, up. You said she's got one or two days to go, or I'm sorry, she. I said one when we first connected, and I don't know if I've lost if it's one or two. I forget what day she was on, but I think she's wrapping it tomorrow. I think she got up up to 85 today and has 15 to go, if I'm not mistaken. That's exciting for yeah for all of you. Um, and you know, we hope yours goes well as well. Um, one, one last thing that if, um, if you're okay, uh, with time, if we can oh, end yeah. up on this note, um, as I said, I think we probably could go four hours or more, but we'll just have to wait till you're, um, pacing you <laughs> to talk about then. But, um, you, you mentioned in a post, um, that it had been three years, um, since you'd been on a podcast, uh, and, and you broke mm-hmm. the silence with, with Dylan and you, you used the term, uh, one trick pony. And, um, and so I know that some people know you for the Barkley marathon. I'm, I'm happy that I met you prior to that. Um, not that my respect for you would have changed after seeing it all go down, but I'm happy that I knew you before then. Um, um, you know, behind the beard and behind the Barkley marathon, who, who do you want people to know you as, um, who do you hope people, um, see you as who is Gary Robbins? I hope, I hope people see me half as, as, uh, 
as nice as you you do, my friend. The um the amount of kind words you've you've spat my way throughout this interview is uh is truly flattering. I really you know it tracks back to that wanting uh, the legacy to be a, being associated with the races. I I want people's experience with me to to be a personal experience where they feel like we got a chance to connect no matter how short that time frame was. And I get a chance to do that at most of my races. Um, the running accolades and everything else mean very little in the end. I think what where my insecurity stems from is my inability to accept the potential outcome to not finish the Barkley. And as time rolls on, and I'll be 44 next year, you do have to accept that there are increasing variables year after year that, that play on things. And if I can just get the Barkley done and dusted, then, uh, you know, I, I won't really care one way or the other, what people, how, what they, they judge me as, or what they view me as they don't, I don't need people to see the other things that I've done, but I, yeah, I guess my insecurity stems from the the potential of not finishing the race and then being known only for that one, one moment of time. Well, um, I think you've done a very good job of being much more than <laughs> your running accolades. And um, as much as you have accomplished, um, you are an even better human being. And I don't say those words lightly. Um, and I, I, I really appreciate your friendship. Um, but even if you were a total stranger, um, you've made me feel like a friend, um, even in the short time that we have been able to interact. And, and the sense that I get is that you that is a, a true gift that you share with, with a lot of people. And, um, I, I thank you for that. And I, and I also admire that you've found that you do need <laughs> to set those boundaries so that you can <laughs> be present, um, when it's, it's time to be on. Um, so thank you so much for your time and, uh, for all that you do for, uh, the sport and the community, uh, for your athletes, for the people to do your races, but even for those of us <laughs> who, uh, direct competing races or compete against you. Uh, I, again, I don't view them as competing races, but, um, you know, I, I the world needs more people like you. And so, um, I hope and you, my friend, and I really appreciate us connecting on this, uh, on this platform. And like I said, it was, uh, it's nice to connect with friends with you and, uh, with Dylan last week. And, uh, dare I say that, um, being able to speak with, with Dylan last week and you this week has, uh, almost made me miss the, the platform because these have been very special experiences. This one in particular, um, I thank you so much for having such a wonderful dialogue and for allowing me to have a voice and, uh, and for supporting me from afar all these years. Um, and I think what you, everything you do from the coaching through the race directing on out is wonderful and and uh, thank you for having me on your program. Thank you. Well, we'll uh, we'll be sure to put the the show notes to to all the good things you've got going on, so that people can can buy one of those head wraps uh, and support your races or other races in their community. Um, and um, and you can find out more about Gary uh, if you just Google him. You you'll have <laughs> a shortage of uh, of things. Uh, Shit shows up. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks, Jacob. Yep. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you found this episode interesting, entertaining, inspiring, or informative, please share it with your friends on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. 
and tag the art and science of running so that we can reshare it. Better yet, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. This will help others with similar interests find this free resource that we've created for listeners around the world. Many thanks in advance. I'm going for a walk.